Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for September 13th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering major issues being addressed by state and federal appellate courts. This week, as the California legislature winds down its 2019 session by sending a final flurry of bills to the governor's desk, we'll examine one measure that pertains to an issue frequently litigated in California state and federal courts. That measure is Assembly Bill 392, which, when it takes effect in January, will create a new, more demanding standard governing when law enforcement officers may use lethal force. AB 392 was signed by Governor Newsom last month after a lengthy process of deliberation and compromise. The core element of the final bill is its change to California's penal code, providing that an officer may use lethal force only when necessary to protect either his or her own life or that of a third party. The standard being replaced was more vague and had allowed deadly force to be employed in circumstances where its use was objectively reasonable. Scores of law enforcement organizations and victims' rights groups have spent the past several months wrangling over just what the final version of AB 392 would look like. The police groups, in general, expressed concern that the bill could cause officers to hesitate and second-guess their actions in context where split-second decisions are vital. Advocates of AB 392 worried that compromises made on the bill would make its practical effects less substantial. For instance, one such compromise, which caused certain groups to pull their support of the bill, removed language in it that would have required officers to attempt to de-escalate situations. The bill's many remaining proponents suggested such compromise was inherent to the legislative process and that the resulting bill still represents a meaningful change. Though we'll need to wait until next year to see just how much impact the new law will have in both criminal and civil contexts, whether it changes the approach or burden on plaintiffs bringing wrongful death actions, or whether it alters the calculus for district attorneys considering prosecuting officers in the wake of deadly incidents. Today, we'll attempt to foresee some of that by first speaking to the bill's author, Assemblywoman Shirley Weber. Then we'll speak with Lisa Holder, a civil rights attorney in Pasadena and adjunct professor at UCLA, who also was a former public defender and can speak to both the likely criminal law and civil law impact of the bill. First, though, we wanted to catch you up on a handful of other prominent measures that have emerged from a very lively 2019 legislative session so to do that, I'd like to welcome in now our Sacramento correspondent, Malcolm McLaughlin. He's been busily covering a bunch of noteworthy bills now headed to Gavin Newsom, many of which, if they become law, will certainly be in court in the near future. Some of those potential laws relate to the viability of the gig economy, the future of arbitration in California, the codification of Me Too movement protections, the force of required vaccination laws, and whether college athletes can market their image and likeness. A bit more on all of that. Let me welcome in now Malcolm McLaughlin. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's work through a a few of these bills. Let's start with AB5. This um, is essentially a a codification of the California Supreme Court's employee-friendly dynamics decision, right? Uh, Tell me a bit about what, uh, what it does and what the arguments are in support of it. Well, it puts new rules in place about uh, when a worker can be considered an independent contractor or an employee, and it moves a lot of people into the employer, uh, employee rather, uh, part of that equation. You know, I mean, it's kind of interesting in that it it codifies a court case and the the California Supreme Court replaced one test with, you know, the Borrello test with an ABC test. That's kind of the part that's known. But it also provided an opportunity for Democratic legislators, particularly Lorena Gonzalez, who is big in terms of employment legislation, Me Too type legislation, a big opponent of arbitration, 
which we're going to get into very soon, um, to, to do something uh, that, you know, she's wanted to do for a long time for workers. Uh, what's been really interesting, there's been a lot of industries uh, asking for carve-outs. Perhaps most notably, the newspaper industry got a carve-out for their delivery drivers uh, that's getting passed in a separate bill, but who explicitly did not get a carve-out is gig economy companies like Uber, Lyft, and DoorDash. And as to those companies, I mean, it was pretty conspicuous yesterday. Uber suggested that AB5 might not necessarily apply to it, that it could continue its operation, which you know really is premised and relies on a, a cohort of independent contractor workers. Um, it suggested that it might be able to get around AB5. I have to imagine that AB5 was sort of conceived with companies like Uber in mind, right? So how do those things sort of fit together? Well, I, and yeah, I think there was a little bit of debate about that that kind of got put to, to rest yesterday when Lorena, Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez actually penned an editorial in the Washington Post that specifically called out those companies. And But I think, you know, when you, you, you see their strategy, they have a lot of cash on hand, um, and it really looks like they're going to try to fight it. Uh, it's very likely to end up in court, and they've also already put $90 million into a referendum effort that we might see next year. It's going to be very interesting. I mean, I think it kind of, uh, they see this as an existential threat to their business model. An Uber driver uh, was either yesterday or today, I believe it was yesterday, actually filed another um, class action lawsuit against the company in the Northern District as well. Certainly, we'll see uh, plenty of Uber-focused litigation then. Um, But let's move on to AB51. So you mentioned arbitration is certainly another central focus of of courts and uh, the legislature in, uh, in recent years. And this relates to whether or not companies can or employers can uh, require their employees to sign arbitration agreements as a condition of uh, employment. Is that right? Yes, yes. Another Lorena Gonzalez bill. If there is a unifying theme for so much of what is going on in the legislature this year, uh, I would almost call it the see you in court uh, year in the California legislature. Uh, so premised on the idea that there is a new, um, apparently more progressive governor in uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, Jerry Brown, which, you know, widely seen as more of a centrist, more business friendly in a lot of ways. And a lot of things that Jerry Brown uh, vetoed, Gavin Newsom was like, let's just go ahead and do it. And, you know, if we end up in court, we end up in court. And I would put AB 51 at the very top of that list. Brown vetoed the idea and vetoed several related measures over the years, basically saying they are preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act. There was a very interesting moment in the Senate debate in the last few days when a Republican got up and said, this is just, you know, this is just going to be preempted. It's going to end up in court and we're going to lose. And Hannah Beth Jackson, who is an attorney and the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, got up and basically, you know, pointed out that Jeff Stone, the Republican senator who had just made those comments, is a pharmacist and not an attorney. It was a little (laughs) bit of a prickly moment. And she said that something along the lines of she does not question his expertise as a pharmacist and then went on to say that she welcomes the lawsuit. Uh, Yeah, so, I mean, this this whole legal theory 
um, of whether you can sort of say you, you, you can sort of prevent the contract at the front end and get around the FAA in that way. Uh, I think a lot of people, including people who support, you know, many of the underlying ideas behind the bill, you know, or support the, you know, the spirit of the bill, think that this actually might be a losing strategy. Uh, you know, no less than Elena Kagan in a lawsuit a few years back said, you know, basically wrote an opinion and said, yeah, you you can't get around the Federal Arbitration Act by sort of preempting it at the beginning. So, yeah, that it, it's looking highly likely that we will test that in court. Uh, when you turn around, if, if Democrats do lose that, I think a lot of Democrats are sort of saying, you know, the ultimate goal is modifying our, you know, getting rid of the Federal Arbitration Act at some point in a more democratic looking future in Washington. So I, I think, you know, I, even if it's a losing court issue, I think many Democrats feel it's a winning political issue that they could win on, you know, legislatively in the long term. Okay, uh, another bill relating to arbitration, this one described as a, a narrow bill by its author, um, relates to a couple of things. It relates to arbitration fees and also um, the demographics of a company's arbitrators. Uh, tell me about uh, AB 707. It's actually SB 707. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, Senator Wykowski, an attorney, another uh, big labor guy in the legislature. Uh, that It is a very interesting bill. I mean, it is fairly narrow, in, but except it does two very different things, one of which at least is seems to be pretty uh, welcomed by the arbitration industry. I had a discussion with Alan Bretman, one of the co-founders over at Judicate West, and he said, you know, what took them so long? The provision um, that we're, you know, that he was talking about is basically saying that if an employer or a business hasn't, you know, is basically the contracting party in an arbitration contract, you know, that they put the, you know, the arbitration clause into the consumer or employment contract, and then a proceeding ends up in arbitration and they don't pay the bill, that this becomes a cause of action that the other party, the, you know, the current or former employee, the disgruntled customer, whoever, can use to say, you know, this contract should be invalid. You know, and, and so I think, you know, uh, the argument is basically that companies have been using non-payment as a way to delay and frustrate arbitration and, um, you know, basically get people to give up. I, I, I don't know to what extent that that is true, but, you know, Alan Bretman seemed to think that it was at least somewhat of a problem. The other, and in some ways even more interesting thing, is it requires these companies to measure and then report to the state the diversity of their arbitration panels. There has been a lot of attention in recent years on the diversity of the state bench in terms of uh, you know, gender, race, even you know, things like legal background. Um, and Jerry Brown really made an effort uh, and a big you know, rhetorical um, thing that his administration was behind was diversifying the state bench. And, you know, by the end, when he finally had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of appointments and really was able to address the issue, he made a real difference. Well, if you look at arbitration panels at any of the big companies, JAMS, Judicate West, ADR Services, they look a lot like the California bench looked 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, I believe it was 
uh, about three-quarters male and 92% white. Uh, and this was something that was actually raised by an issue that was raised by the musician Jay-Z uh, a few years back. He was involved in sort of an arbitration dispute and complained that it was impossible to find a neutral uh, who wasn't a white man who could take this case and that, you know, that's an access to justice issue. Okay, um, let's move on to a couple of public safety measures. We have SB 276, which, as I understand from your coverage, generally makes it harder for folks to get medical exemptions from the um, vaccine requirements that apply to folks, uh, to children going to, to school and the like. Tell me a bit more about uh, 276 and uh, how it uh, differs from an earlier similar law, SB 277. Yeah, there's every every year or two, there seems to be one bill that just kind of catches the public imagination and, you know, results in hundreds of people coming to the Capitol and loudly protesting. And it's often something that catches, you know, sort of Capitol insiders off guard. You know, one year it was uh, mandatory spaying and neutering of pets, you know, which I think, you know, people didn't necessarily expect. Well, this year, I mean, I think they actually had an idea that 276 was going to be that bill. Because of the really strong opposition to 277, when that was carried in 2015, both bills are are authored by Senator Richard Pan, a a doctor, a pediatrician who was actually, uh, some people believe, uh, recruited into a political career by the California Medical Association. SB 276 cracked down on personal belief exemptions. And the result of that bill, you know, now that it's had some time in effect, was that a small number of doctors apparently started writing a large number of uh, medical exemptions. And, you know, a certain number of medical exemptions are always going to have to be in play, you know, because of uh, people who have, you know, immune disorders, cancer, that sort of thing. And the specifically relates to children in uh, enrolling in public schools. SB 277 cracks down on the medical exemptions. And uh, that, you know, that really seems to have um, awakened this, you know, base of people who are skeptical of vaccines who came out in large numbers. Um, Whether there is any sort of legal challenge to these bills, it seems pretty doubtful. There were... um, at least four unsuccessful legal challenges to SB 277. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, pa- passing rules like this appears to be clearly within the purview of the state legislature. There's also apparently going to be an effort to uh, put a referendum on the ballot to uh, do away with SB 276. And, you know, possibly uh, we haven't I have not seen anything in writing yet possibly some of these other bills, um, it, whether or not those would actually pass seems kind of unlikely given that support for this legislation and, you know, just the various pieces of legislation calling for school children to be vaccinated is in the 80 plus percentage uh, point support. So uh, I, I'm guessing that this is going to be, you know, much ado about about nothing, but you know, clearly this movement is not going uh, not going away. Uh, another issue that evokes some pretty strong emotions: uh, a gun control measure AB sixty one is sort of California's version of a red flag law, where folks could be 
indicated as potentially thinking of using uh, guns for, for violence and have those in an ex parte sort of way removed from them. Tell me a bit more about the AB61 and how it also builds on some existing gun control law on the books. Yeah, so California is one of, I think, 17 states that have some version of a red flag law already. Uh, I think ours only dates from about 2014. And uh, that one uh, basically uh, allowed law enforcement and immediate family members to raise the uh, the red flag of this person is a danger to themselves or others. And uh, proponents of the new bill, AB 61, have really pointed out that what they believe is has been um, a real success of the existing law since it has been in effect. I know uh, supporters of the bill were were circulating uh, a legislative analysis or uh, that basically claimed that um, actually I'm not sure exactly where this came from uh, I'd have to look it up but that up to of the 600 people who had guns taken away it, uh, under the existing version of the law nobody went on to shoot anybody themselves or anybody else um, you know, I mean, I think opponents of the law might say, well, that, you know, means that a lot of people actually did not need to have their guns taken away. The current bill expands that to uh, other groups, co-workers, teachers, uh, contains some language about, you know, um, people who are sort of in regular contact with the uh, person that might be subjected to the red flag warning. Um, because I believe, you know, there were some of these other instances where other people came forward and said, Hey, I called law enforcement and they didn't do anything because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't law enforcement. I wasn't immediate family member. Uh, this also brings up some really interesting politics because one of the main groups that has opposed this bill has been the ACLU of California. Which, you know, the ACLU, you know, love them or hate them, uh, they tend to be pretty consistent on their, you know, Bill of Rights and free speech beliefs. Um, reminds me of an, uh, an old Onion headline, ACLU goes to court to fight for right of KKK to burn down ACLU headquarters. <laughs> uh, they, they, they will... <laughs> They will take up a cause no matter how much it angers the people who are usually their traditional and donor base. Though, you know, I don't, I, I, I am not aware of any red flag laws being overturned in court. So again, um, this does seem to be in the purview of um, a legislature to do. And I don't know that there have been any, you know, serious Second Amendment or other uh, issues raised. Uh, yeah, but it could it could be interesting going forward, especially as this sort of circle of concern of, you know, people who could raise these objections to a person having their guns gets, you know, potentially wider and wider. Okay, I wanted to touch on a one criminal justice bill. This is SB 36, and it's sort of the next step in, in California's attempt to uh, cease the use of cash bail as a, a way that uh, criminals are or folks charged with crimes are allowed out pre-trial um, and to have that approach replaced with something that better measures their potential uh, danger if let out or likelihood to, to flee the jurisdiction. Uh, tell me a bit about what SB 36 does, especially considering um, we're still waiting for SB 10 to sort of get uh, subject to that referendum. So what does this measure do in the, in the meanwhile? 
Well, SB, uh, SB 10 and SB 36 have the same author, uh, Senator Robert Hertzberg, uh, also an attorney um, and a, a former Daily Journal Top 100 um, uh, honoree and back in, I think, 2008. And it's really it goes to sort of the sore point of SB 10 and the whole issue of getting rid of of cash bail is what do you replace it with? And that really got exposed late in the legislative game, you know, right about a year ago when uh, SB 10 had, had, you know, really made it through a very, very, very difficult legislative process had been amended a bunch of times. And the ACLU of California, again, and some other groups that um, are, you know, uh, for criminal justice reform, are for racial justice, uh, said, hey, you know, these pretrial assessment tools um, cannot, you know, can be equally racist and hurt, you know, the poor as cash bail has been accused of doing for so long. And they did not like how these things were written into the bill. Um, SB 36 is, it, it really has two prongs is that, you know, it funds these pilot projects and demands that, you know, data from pilot projects in several counties about pretrial assessment be turned out, you know, reported to the judicial council, which will then, will put together reports, you know, kind of what is working, what isn't, you know, and really allow data gathering on pretrial assessment. Uh, of you know who is a danger to themselves uh, or others, who is a who is a flight risk, you know who who should be you know try to get to this objective idea of who should be kept in custody and who should not, but at the same time, it acknowledges that counties all over the state have already been experimenting with you know uh, alternatives to cash bail. Uh, pre-trial assessment. San Francisco has been particularly active in this, but there are many others. And that even if SB 10, you know, is voted down in uh, the referendum next year, SB 36 helps pave the way to more and more uh, arrestees around the state being eligible for um, some kind of, uh, you know, uh, alternative to cash bail. Uh, but again, you know, in that case, we would be looking at a continuation of the very, very uh, uneven patchwork system that we're already kind of developing around the state, which, you know, whether you're going to pay a big bail amount for, say, a nonviolent uh, being arrested for on suspicion of a nonviolent crime or not, will you know, largely depend on where you are arrested. You mentioned in your coverage uh, a handful of bills aptly described as uh, in response to the Me Too movement. Uh, can you mention a couple of those that you think are especially prominent? Uh, yeah, well, um, and this goes back to the idea that uh, Gavin Newsom might be willing to sign on to a lot of bills that Jerry Brown was not uh, wi- not willing to do. Um, AB 51, the arbitration bill, is, um, you know, is very much a Me Too uh, bill. Um, uh, another one that's very prominent is AB9, is a uh, statute of limitations in sexual harassment cases. That, you know, that has been relatively um, non-controversial to the extent that uh, things like this can be. I think a more controversial bill to, uh, oppo- you know, to a lot of Republicans and some opponents of, you know, maybe some of these 
types of changes is AB 1478, which allows people who want to file a sexual harassment or some other type of workplace suit. Uh, there, there's kind of a process where you file with the state with, um, I believe, I don't have it right in front of the Department of Labor Standards. And, uh, you know, and then it sort of gets cleared for you to file a complaint. It would allow you to go around that process. Uh, a, a lot of Republicans do not like it and have spoken against it in that, you know, in, because in the process of doing that, it creates another private attorney general right, uh, which, you know, they believe will lead to a lot of um, just sort of excess and frivolous litigation that might otherwise uh, be stopped. Um, you know, again, I am, I am not an expert on PAGA. Um, but you know, that, that is the argument that has come up, uh, over and over again with this bill. Uh, then just one last one, SB 206, this relates to the, uh, the ability of college athletes, as I understand it, to, uh, make money off of their likenesses as it's used in, in the various forms of media that, um, often do use, uh, athlete likenesses. Uh, the NCAA has very firmly tried to resist uh, changes that would allow um, essentially payment uh, to college athletes. Tell me a bit about uh, SB 206. Oh, this one is fascinating. Um, the, uh, the the genesis of this bill uh, goes back a few years to, uh, there was a former UCLA basketball star, Ed O'Bannon. I think he was on one of their last uh, national championship teams from uh, when they were still a dominant team. I uh, was, you know, kind of the leader of that team, very popular player. Um, and he, you know, did not end up making as much money in professional basketball as he had hoped. He was at a friend's house, you know, years later. And I, I believe it was like the friend's kids were playing a, a, a game and he was in the game and, and you know, at the UCLA, you know, not identified name, you know, by name, but the player on the screen had his number, looked a lot like him, had his skill set. And he was like, I never made any money off of that. He files a lawsuit, he loses. So basically this says that California is no longer going to honor the NCAA rule that prevents athletes from competing if, uh, you know, if, if they take steps to kind of be more professional athletes, in this case, selling their likeness, you know, under this law, a, a popular player in a popular sport could do an ad for like a local, you know, car dealership or something like that. And uh, the NCAA has really tried very, very hard to block this to, you know, get people to vote against it. They have said that they would consider blocking uh, California teams from playoffs, championships, just even competition in general. So that, you know, that very well could end up in court again if they do end up uh, taking that route. But it's very clear where public sentiment and the sentiment of legislators were. It's almost unheard of for something to pass 72 nothing in the assembly with, you know, Republicans getting on board with a democratic bill and speaking in favor of it. And once it got over to the, you know, that was 72 out of 80. Once it got over to the Senate, uh, after it had really come out publicly, how hard and by how many different means, how many different sort of letters to legislature and the governor, the uh, NCAA has been trying to block this. That passed 39 to nothing out of uh, out of 40 senators. 
And it was just very clearly, you know, the California legislature going, yeah, we're going to we're going to call your bluff on this. Um, I mean, there was so much attention placed on uh, basketball star LeBron James's uh, support of this bill. It didn't even need LeBron James. This was just a, a slam dunk, so to speak, from from the very beginning. And again, it's California uh, and California legislature saying, you want to sue us? We'll see you in court. Yeah, it sounds like certainly the, the theme of the, the session. We'll leave it there for now. But like you say, probably see a lot of these laws in court over the next few years. Uh, Malcolm McLaughlin, thanks for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Before welcoming in our next guest, Assemblywoman Charlie Weber, I wanted to take just one moment to remind you that the Daily Journal is a great source for continuing legal education credits. In addition to the self-study credits you can get for reading attorney-written columns in our newspaper, you can also get a participatory credit for listening to the show and completing a short true-false test once you've listened to verify that you tuned in. So after you listen to this episode, if you'd like to claim one hour of participatory California CLE credit, just find this episode on our site, dailyjournal.com. Com, click on the link to the true-false test, take that and claim your credit. Doing so not only keeps the good folks at the State Bar mollified, but enables us to continue bringing you this content outside of our usual paywall. Okay, Shirley Weber, a Democratic Assemblywoman from San Diego, introduced AB 392 to the California legislature in February and has now led it to passage. She joins us now to talk about the new standard governing police use of lethal force and about the bill's path to law. Assemblywoman Weber, Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. You have said that the signing of AB 392 is an occasion to celebrate. Um, What is being celebrated here? Well, I think what's being celebrated is finally California uh, has changed its law so that it basically respects life and works to save lives so that it says that lethal force, uh, which is uh, the most uh, extreme force that one can use, should only be used when someone's life is is being threatened, when the officer's life is in imminent danger of losing his life, or that someone in the immediate area is going to lose their life as a result of it. So it changes the standard from being uh, a reasonable standard to what we call necessary, that you only use lethal force when it is necessary to prevent uh, the death of an officer or the person uh, behind the badge or individuals in front of the badge. So uh, it changes our standard with regards to that and, and as a result changes how we view law enforcement, hopefully communities do, in terms of the interactions that they have. As to that change in standard, going from only permitting the use of lethal force when it was reasonable to now only permitting it when it's it's necessary, in practical terms, how much Differences there between those two standards, a reasonable use and a necessary use? Well, it should be a lot because what happens right now is the reason why so many folks in the communities look at what took place and try to figure out how in the world could did that happen? Why couldn't they have done something else? Uh, because they're generally saying people were not at harm. They weren't in danger. So why did you use lethal force? So it should change it immensely in terms of how the training that takes place to, to de- help officers learn how to de-escalate situations and not uh, strictly rely upon the use of deadly force, but to use other strategies to de-escalate the situation, to calm the situations down, and hopefully to save lives. Where this has happened or has been utilized in uh, places like Seattle and other places, they have seen a decrease in the number of deaths, 
and the shootings that have occurred. Uh, they've not seen an increase in, in harm to officers either. So as a result, it is a safer policy in terms of practice than, than the current policy that we have. And so it empowers our officers, it empowers our uh, district attorneys and others to look at it in a different light than they have before. And to, too often the community would see things and um, uh, those who are supposed to be doing the evaluation or the assessment or the grand juries or whatever it turns out to be. Well, you know, based on the law, uh, this is what we are forced to do, even though we agree with you that it might have been a use of excessive force, but basically based on the law of reasonableness, was it reasonable to be afraid? Was it reasonable to this, that, or the other? It, it caused people to not to, uh, be able to, uh, in their minds, get any sense of justice or a fair evaluation of the circumstance. How would you say this places California in regard to um, other states across the country in terms of standards of, of police use of force? Well, uh, those who've, who've looked at it and who um, are law professors and others and who work with this in this area says that California now will have the, the strictest policy regarding the use of force of any state in the nation. We're the only one with this policy as a state. Uh, there are other cities and various smaller jurisdictions that might have similar policies, but California will be the first to have a state. And being the largest state, obviously, it should have the greatest impact. Uh, but we will have it as a state policy, as a state mandate, not as a recommendation. Uh, we will have all of our officers in the state trained to that new standard, uh, and we will be assessing and evaluating what we're doing based on the new standard. So California will have the strictest policy concerning use of lethal force in the nation. That notwithstanding, the, the final version of this bill did lose some support from prior proponents, perhaps most notably Black Lives Matter. Um, how do you respond to those critics? Well, you know, everyone has their view of what they want. And uh, and some have things that, that are a little bit more extreme than others. And, and so anytime you put a bill together, at some point you may lose some support. Uh, but I look at the situation, there were over 200 different social justice organizations that were supportive of this bill that remained. We had 12 different true sponsors. We lost two. Uh, so in the end, we ended up with still 10 different uh, support groups, as well as over 200 support organizations. And so uh, given the nature of the bill and how difficult it was to get it through and, and and the kinds of things we had to do, and, and we still ended up with a bill that accomplished all the goals that we had set for ourselves. Losing a couple of people was unfortunate, but it obviously did not uh, weaken the bill in any sense in terms of what we thought uh, our goals were in helping us to begin to move forward. Anytime you do a bill, you're going to compromise something. You have to give up something. I mean, there's very few bills that go through the House without having minor changes, either delay in implementation or, or something that causes it to, uh, or either sometimes it's, not a, it's no longer a mandate, it's a recommendation, or it only affects uh, the police and not the highway patrol. You know, all those kinds of things take place. But the main focus is that, you know, this bill was designed to, to save lives to give us a better policy. And uh, and as a result, it accomplished that. Yeah, we lost a few folks along the way, uh, regrettably. Some of their um, people who work with them were, uh, were upset that some of the folks pulled out. Uh, and even some members of their own organizations didn't agree that they should pull out. But, you know, organizations are run by a majority and, and they decide what they're going to do. And they helped us as much as they could. And so, um, you know, we move on to the next point. Yeah. It's one thing for a law mm -hmm. and a standard to be changed on the books. It's another for that uh, change to be sort of implemented and learned and, and adopted into policy practices by the folks that are impacted here, law enforcement officers. How confident are you that uh, this change will actually filter down to um, folks on the ground? 
Well, you know, we've already begun the process. Last year, when I first introduced 931, which is the other bill, as chair of uh, public safety's uh, budget, I increased their budget by 50%, specifically to deal with the straining of officers in the area of de-escalation and the use of other things other than lethal force. So we did that. Uh, we've got a number of them who have uh, taken on the challenge of various grants that we put together as well uh, that have began to change their policies and their behavior with regards to training, repose, so that every officer will be trained in the whole issue of de-escalation. Uh, they'll all be evaluated. Uh, the data will be collected about who did what to whom. So we're confident that this is because of the profile of this. It was not a quiet thing, that members were excited about it, that this will get the kind of support as we've committed financially, as well as training that will take place. We already have some major people like uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco, uh, large cities that have already begun the process of this. This will help them financially and basically continue to retrain all of their officers. Los Angeles began uh, looking at this policy of de-escalation and changing the, the standards for their police uh, department. Now they've got a little higher standard, but at least they're already in a mindset to make change. Uh, in San Diego, in my own uh, area, the district attorney had already begun to talk about uh, changing how they are um, dealing with folks who have mental illness and trying to de-escalate situations. So she has uh, acquired a, a million dollars from our county to begin the process of retraining our officers. What we've done will help her with that as well as other areas. So folks, I think, kind of realized that something was going to have to be done in many of the large jurisdictions, and so they began to do it. Uh, and so every officer uh, from post will be trained and will be held to a higher standard. Ashley Weber, thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. Well, thank you. Have a good day. Before welcoming in Lisa Holder, one other quick reminder that every Friday, like today, our newspaper puts out a big section full of consequential verdicts, settlements, judgments, arbitration awards, and the like. We publish those to help you keep track of California trial court outcomes and to help evaluate your cases, but if you have a result you'd like to see in that section, we'd love to include it. Find out how to submit to our verdicts and settlements section by going to www.dailyjournal.com slash V and S. That's V and S spelled out, no ampersand. Okay, Lisa Holder is a civil rights attorney practicing in Pasadena at the law office of Lisa Holder, where she has pursued civil rights claims for 10 years. She also teaches about police accountability litigation at UCLA School of Law, Ms. Holder, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Before diving into AB 392 and the new standard that will go on the books in a few months, let's talk about the, the existing law, the existing standard that has been governing this area for almost 150 years. It, uh, roughly speaking, allows for law enforcement officers to use lethal force sort of when reasonable. Um, I think also there's a provision in the penal code that uh, allows lethal force to be used sort of in response to resistance on the part of, of folks. And so those standards are the ones that uh, you as a plaintiff side, you know, civil rights attorney have been working with. What about that standard has been problematic? Tell me a bit about what it's been like having that be the, the governing law. As you indicated, I do teach. I'm a teacher, a law school professor. And so I always start off a conversation about any type of uh, legislation or policy with a broader context, just to have a context for understanding and framing the specific issue. So I want to start off just, if you bear with me for a minute, just talking a little bit about the state of the law in California 
and the state of criminalization and um, police abuse in the state of California. So in California, we're coming out of an era of mass incarceration, mass criminalization through broken windows policing and zero tolerance policies of juvenile offenses that established a school to prison pipeline epidemic. And we're coming off of a 30 year period where California built 30 new prisons for every new school. We're coming off of an era of rampant police violence where police in California kill more people than in any other state and at a rate almost 40% higher than the national average. And we're coming off of an era of little to no police accountability where, for example, the LA prosecutor's office has not opted to prosecute a police officer accused of excessive force in 20 years. So all of this over-policing has disproportionately impacted African-Americans and communities of color. And so although it's alarming, it's not surprising that police violence is the leading cause of death for young black men, according to a recent study and a recent article published in the LA Times. Police officers are critical for our public safety, but over-policing is just as dangerous as under-policing, especially to communities of color. And it is my belief that now is the time to, to move toward balanced policing um, that includes decriminalization of low-level offenses so that there is less interaction between the police and communities of color just going about their day-to-day existence. And we have to end this era of broken windows policing. That alone will significantly lower the incidence of deadly encounters between police and civilians, especially police and Black youth. Now, going to this specific bill um, that we're going to be talking about today, AB 392, Two, and its predecessor, which is the Penal Code Section 835. Under the Penal Code Section 835, which up until very recently was the governing law in California, police officers could use deadly force whenever an objectively reasonable officer would have done so under the same circumstances. And this is regardless of whether there was an immediate threat to the police officer's life or to the life of anyone near the police officer. That was the existing law that governed police force and police shootings. It's an antiquated standard that was adopted in 1872, back in the days when California was still considered the Wild West. So as you said, it's, it, was a, it was a governing law that was over 150 years old. It's a, it was a law that was lower than the federal constitutional standard for police force. And that constitutional standard requires objectively reasonable officer to perceive an imminent threat of serious bodily injury before using deadly force. And this pre-existing law, PC-835, basically would allow a police officer to shoot someone who wasn't even a threat, someone who was fleeing, a suspected felon who was fleeing arrest. And so a police officer could use deadly force just to arrest someone, even if that person wasn't a deadly threat to the officer. So that was the challenge of this pre-existing law. That's why AB 392 is good news at the end of the day. Can I ask you just for a second you know, about the discrepancy between the U.S. constitutional use of force standard developed based on the you know the Fourth Amendment and the existing California standard, which you describe as below the constitutional, U.S. constitutional one. Of course, the, the federal constitution certainly, at least in theory, protects folks in all the states, including California. So I guess what is sort of the practical problem of having potentially a, a less 
uh, protective standard in state law when, at least in theory, the folks in the state are protected and police are restrained by the federal rule about use of force. Right. Well, you're correct. You know, the standard for deadly force comes from the Fourth Amendment because under the Constitution, as as it has been interpreted by the court and the Supreme Court, a police shooting that constitutes excessive force is a Fourth Amendment violation. It's an illegal seizure of the person's body. Um, and so the the Fourth Amendment constitutional standard was that if you're going to use deadly force, it could only be used when an objectively reasonable officer perceived an imminent threat of serious bodily injury. The California standard under PC 835 was only that you could use that kind of deadly force if any other objectively reasonable officer would have used it under the circumstances. The discrepancy was that in, under California law, you didn't need any imminent threat of seriously bodily injury or death, right? Number one. Number two, under California's law, it was extremely vague. I mean, what does that mean? You can use deadly force when any other objectively reasonable officer would have used it. It was an extremely vague law that really did not give police officers guidance and sufficient tools for understanding the use of this level of force. And fundamentally, having this type of discrepancy with the Fourth Amendment and the constitutional standard is legally unacceptable because the Constitution is supposed to establish the bar for any kind of policy, right? That's the legal bar. That's the legal threshold. And State law is not supposed to fall under that federal constitutional threshold under any conditions. It sort of sounds like, as you described the federal constitutional standard, that what AB 392 might do is get to be essentially on par with it because the new law would stipulate that officers should use lethal force only when necessary to defend human life. So in that context, it's stipulating that there is an imminent threat to human life, either the officers or a, a third person nearby. Is that the way to look at 392 is sort of putting California in line with what the Fourth Amendment standard has been? Well, AB 392, it makes California use of force law consistent with the constitutional standard. And it actually goes above and beyond the constitutional consensus by providing a necessity requirement that says it has to be necessary. Deadly, the use of deadly force has to be necessary to prevent an imminent death or injury, right? So it's going even further than the federal and constitutional standard, which says that a reasonable officer has to perceive an imminent threat of serious bodily injury. This has a necessity requirement, which makes it a higher threshold. In terms of this sort of speaking in, in somewhat theoretical legal terms, uh, in terms of practical realities, what sort of difference um, does that standard make on the ground? What are some situations where lethal force would have been acceptable thing to be used under previous California law that no longer would be allowed based on, on the new law? First, we need to look at the spectrum of deadly force. I think that most people immediately jump to deadly force equals shooting. Deadly force is actually a part of a broader spectrum. So deadly force is not just shooting. It encompasses other types of force, such as 
excessive beating of someone, especially at an area of the body that's likely to kill them. So if you're beating someone about the head with a baton, that is deadly force. Tasing someone in an area that is likely to cause death or serious bodily harm, that's deadly force. So if you tase someone right in their heart or right in their chest around their heart, that's deadly force. And so other types of police aggression, you know, such as certain types of chokeholds, those are also deadly force or putting a suspect in certain positions that could cause asphyxiation right? Like hog tying someone on a hot day when it's 100 degrees and then also having officers on top of that person's body. That could be perceived as deadly force. So it's not just shooting. So I think on a practical level, this law, which requires necessity before you use any type of deadly force, is going to force police officers to think twice about the spectrum of force that they're using and whether what they're doing to apprehend a suspect or, you know, constitutes deadly force. And um, think twice about the tactics that they're using and whether that they should be low, whether they should be lowering the level of force in order to remain consistent with the requirements of AB 392. The sort of reasonableness standard in the existing law had been problematic. In this new one, you know, there's absolutely hard to avoid in contexts like this, there's still something of a reasonableness standard. I mean, that the question of whether force was necessary in a given context is going to be viewed by finders of fact as as through the eyes of a, a reasonable uh, officer. That in and of itself is not problematic. It's still you're taking a look at this situation through the eyes of a reasonable officer. The, the, fact, the important fact is that that reasonable officer must think that the force was was necessary to be used, right? That's right. You know, as we indicated, deadly force is governed by the Fourth Amendment, right? The use of deadly force. It comes under the Fourth Amendment. So reasonableness is the touchstone for the Fourth Amendment. Any type of seizure, search or seizure under the Fourth Amendment is governed by a reasonableness standard. So that's always going to be embedded in a law that governs the use of force. Um, but in this case, necessity is really... Um, one of the important governing touchstones and principles. So a reasonable officer would have to deem the level of force necessary in order to save their own life um, in, you know, in self-defense or in defense of others. Taking a look at what AB 392 might look like on, on the ground in a, a given situation between a law enforcement officer and an individual. How about from the perspective of a civil rights plaintiff like yourself in, in court? If you're, say, bringing a, a wrongful death action in, in state court and saying that a, a law enforcement officer had not lived up to the, the new standard, had not used force acceptably under its terms, um, how different is the situation in court trying to make that case uh, with the, the new standard? Okay, so a couple of things. I just sort of want to unpack that question a little bit. I'd say as far as how does this law change the litigation spectrum, um, the litigation arena, right? I, th I think it's most the most important change is the fact that this new law makes it easier for prosecutors, criminal prosecutors, to prosecute abusive police officers. Okay, 
this law is most effective in terms of how it changes the criminal prosecution arena, right? Because it's now easier for a prosecutor to prove their case that uh, a police officer violated the law. Okay. So now from the perspective of a civil rights attorney and someone who litigates police excessive force cases, it's still a win, right? Because, you know, depending on the types of cases, the, the, the types of causes of action that you're bringing in state court, you can use this new law to help create a narrative framework, right? So if you're saying the California law establishes that deadly force has to be necessary, it has to be a last resort, then you can make a, a civil rights claim that an officer's use of deadly force was should be criminally liable. An officer should be civilly liable for their use of deadly force if it didn't follow that governing California law under California state law. You can you can you can make that claim. And obviously, this standard under AB three ninety two is a higher standard than what previously existed under Penal Code eight thirty five. So that benefits civil rights lawyers bringing wrongful death claims or excessive force under some sort of California statute. In that criminal context, you mentioned that the standard should, or at least theoretically does, allow for a greater number of prosecutions against law enforcement officers that have used lethal force. You say that's been a a quite rare occurrence, in particular here where we are in Los Angeles County. I mean, do you think that uh, we might see more uh, of those types of prosecutions? And also, you have done some work on the criminal defense side, uh, not defending law enforcement officers, but on the but as a public defender in, in L.A. I mean, how much more difficult would it be for a criminal defense attorney in a prosecution against a law enforcement officer? Uh, how much more difficult would their job be in, in such a case? Well, as you said, you know, I have a background in criminal defense. I started out as a public defender, and now I have a practice where I do criminal appeals, and I defend um, people detained and accused of crimes. I have not defended a police officer, but I understand the legal principles of defending a police officer in this situation. And so for defense attorneys who are defending police officers accused of violating AB 392, you know, it's going to be much more difficult than defending them under the previous objectively reasonable standard, because now you're going to have to show that the police officer reasonably believed that killing someone or shooting someone or using deadly force was the only way that that police officer could save him or herself or someone else who was in immediate danger. You're going to have to prove that the police officer took every other necessary step to try and manage the situation. And the only alternative essentially was to use deadly force. So this necessity requirement is is a very steep requirement. And so it's going to be much harder for defense attorneys defending police officers to elude prosecution. And on the flip side, it's going to be much easier for District attorney's offices who prosecute police officers, DAs can no longer 
you know, give the excuse that, well, it's too hard to prosecute these cases because it's a reasonableness standard. Now they have all the tools they need to prosecute rogue officers or officers that um, are using excessive deadly force because it's a much easier standard and it's much easier to prove to a, jur- to a jury that uh, a police officer violated AB 392 beyond a reasonable doubt than it previously was to prove that case under the Penal Code 835. Can you describe what a, a defense attorney would be tasked with now under the new law of proving that his or her client had, had really sort of thought about all the other available alternatives and, and come to the conclusion that using lethal force was absolutely necessary, it was the last resort and, and, and merited in a given context? That seems to uh, connect with one of the principal criticisms that law enforcement groups and uh, law enforcement trade associations have made against the law, that it requires too much of officers on the ground in these, you know, very quick, potentially very dangerous encounters to to really go through a laborious thought process and make sure, okay, here are, you know, these 10 different things I could do and make sure I can't do one to nine. I have to just go ahead and finally conclude that the only option is, is lethal force. You know, to any extent, do you credit that argument that uh, the law might demand too much of officers on the ground in terms of, you know, figuring out exactly whether force was uh, was necessary? Again, this is a question that needs to be unpacked. Firstly, police officers have to be held to a higher standard than civilians when it comes to making decisions under stress, because that's part of their job description. So they need to be trained in how to make decisions about using deadly force under stress and decisions that sometimes are very quick decisions. They need to be trained in all sorts of de-escalation tactics and trained in how to use other tools to deal with sort of highly charged situations. So, you know, I don't believe that police officers should just be held to this sort of normative standard that civilians are being held to when it comes to making sometimes split-second decisions, right? Because they should have the training and the tools to know how to make those decisions effectively and to know how to make those decisions without taking life unnecessarily. So that's number one. Number two is that this law is is basically dealing with the low-hanging fruit, Okay. One of the things that I indicated to you that in California, police kill more people in California than in any other state at a rate almost 40% higher than the national average. In 2017, officers killed 172 people in California. Okay. So we have a problem with police killings in this state. Under the previous law, where police could essentially kill someone who was fleeing or or kill someone who was not a deadly threat, you know, that's why we have this sort of epidemic of police killings, because we had an unsatisfactory legal standard before. Now, we are dealing with the low-hanging fruit in terms of obviously unnecessary police killings. You don't shoot someone who's fleeing. You don't shoot someone who is not a deadly threat, right? Or you don't put someone in a chokehold unless they are a deadly threat. They have a gun and and it's the only way to save your life to put someone in that chokehold, right? So now police officers are being warned that you are not going to use deadly force 
when you have other tools at your disposal, unless it's absolutely necessary to do that. And so I don't believe that this law makes it too difficult for police officers. Being a police officer is, a, is an extremely difficult job. It's like being a pilot or like being a astronaut. And police officers have to be vetted so that they are calm, cool, and collected and know how to make decisions under fire and decisions that preserve life unless it's absolutely necessary to take life. And that's what this law does. It requires them to have those tools at their disposal, understand those tools, be trained within that framework, um, and to utilize those tools on the ground and only use force, deadly force, when it's absolutely necessary. It sounds like, um, as you describe it, the new standard would would have a significant impact and make a substantial change to police practices, to the litigation that might follow incidents. Some groups have, have complained that the passage required some amendments in this bill that maybe watered it down or represented compromises such that wouldn't be able to have the originally intended effect, that it wouldn't actually deter that much excessive force on the part of law enforcement officers. Um, certain groups, uh, probably most prominently the Black Lives Matter organization, pulled support for the bill. Um, some have said that the vague standard of the reasonableness standard is sort of replaced by another one that might not be um, that much less vague. But it sounds like you think that this is a substantial and concrete uh, improvement. Yeah, I, I understand the friction around the language of the bill. You know, um, I think the original text was supposed to have some language that explained what necessity meant. And so it was supposed to be in the text to define the word necessity. And it was a very strict definition. I think the original language of the bill also indicated that officers could be charged with involuntary manslaughter if they were negligent in their conduct uh, leading up to a shooting. And that language was removed from the final statute. I think that that language in the law was was very useful in terms of giving very sort of strict standards that police could easily follow. But that language was taken out because it was too hard to get the legislator to pass the bill. I think what we were left with, although some of that language was removed, I think the spirit of the law has been preserved because it still changes an antiquated standard that allowed for excessive police killings and, and, and brings us up to a constitutional standard that should be the lowest bar that any state should be following. So I, 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 I still think the spirit of the law is good. I think it will improve things on the ground. Lisa Holder from the Law Offices of, of Lisa Holder in, in Pasadena. Thanks very much for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, it was a pleasure to speak to you. And that's our podcast for September 13th, 2019. Thanks one more time to all of my guests, Lisa Holder, Shirley Weber, and Malcolm McLaughlin. Also thanks to my production staff here, Principal Heinrich Nilsson, and also thanks to you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. I'm Brian Cardell. We're speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.